word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Father, please bless the reading of your word. Please minister to us through it. Help us to hear you. Help us to respond to you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a quote with you that I want to share with you again. It's from the Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper said, There is not a single square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. As I said then a couple of weeks ago, understanding this simple reality is the sum total of what it means to have a Christian worldview, to recognize, affirm, and live as though Christ is indeed Lord over all. Oftentimes when we hear that term worldview, we're not quite exactly what to make of it. it it's kind of an unusual word. It's a word that maybe you don't hear every day, probably even every week. But your worldview, simply put, is how you see reality. How you perceive things. And so therefore it's also how you make sense of life. How you make sense of disappointment and tragedy. How you make sense of, of good people suffering and bad people prevailing. How you make sense of life is framed by your worldview. How you see reality. And unfortunately, too many who wear the name Christian fail to live with a worldview that is actually thoroughly Christian. Too many of us practice what might be called Christian compartmentalization, where we segment off and protect from one another the various parts of our lives. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that we often live splintered and fragmented lives because we've put up nice, neat boundaries between these different parts of our lives and never the twain shall meet. Or so we think. You see, we don't live with eternity in view. This is not to suggest merely the threat of hell. That, hey, you need to be aware of eternity. That eternity is always at stake. The, the type of, of idea that leads to, to turn or burn type of theology. No, this is simply to say that we don't live with an awareness of and a sensitivity to the end game of our lives. What we are becoming. The end game of the lives of those around us. What they are becoming. You remember from the Westminster Short Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? 
The answer given, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Some of you probably learned that growing up. But this idea of an end, it's not about finality, it's about destination. It's about what we are becoming. What is the purpose of our lives? And God's purpose for us is often not the purpose that we make for ourselves or that the world tries to make for us. Again, we don't live with eternity in view. With the idea of who we are becoming. The idea of what is the trajectory of our lives. We don't often live with that awareness. In the Great Commission, Jesus makes an assumption about us. We often think of what he demands of us, what he commands, what he commissions us for. But he does make an assumption about us that's not often in the translations that we read. He does not commission us to go. He commissions us to make disciples as we go. Jesus assumes that we are going. He does not command go. He says, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Tom, you'll like this. It's a participle. A present participle. Going, make disciples. The command is simple. Now, how you make disciples is not always all that simple. But his his command is singular. Make disciples. What he's assuming about us is that we've got something to which to be going. We've got lives to return to. We set aside this hour on Sunday mornings as a break from the rest of life. We celebrate the resurrection, the first day of the week. This is not our weekend. This is the beginning of our week. This is the day that the Lord rose. This is the the first day. You might think of it as the eighth day of the creation week, the day of new creation. It is the beginning of what lies ahead for us. But tomorrow will come. And Jesus' command to us is as we are going into tomorrow, as we are going, wherever we are going, make disciples. For Paul... It's as if Jesus said, as you travel throughout the Roman Empire, make disciples. As you plant churches, as you minister in synagogues, as you call people into the love of Christ, as you point people to Jesus as the Messiah, the Redeemer, make disciples. As you find yourself in prison, For my sake, make disciples. This making of disciples, this reproducing of what God has done in his life is the one thing that consumes Paul's life. It consumes his mind and it consumes his heart. And so you have him reminding the Colossians that Even as he's writing, he's writing from prison. He is in chains because of the ministry of Christ, because of of his, his refusal to stop making disciples. 
He'll remind them in his closing remarks, remember my chains. You see, Paul was thoroughly convinced of his identity as an ambassador of Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. What he spoke about in his second epistle to the, to the Corinthians. We are ambassadors for Jesus. It is as if God himself were pleading through us, be reconciled. If Jesus assumes that we're going, and if for Paul that meant going to a prison, the question that we have to ask is, well, where are we going? Put another way, perhaps a more, a more blunt way, who do we rub up against in life? Because that's really how we measure our lives. That's how we evaluate our lives is our relationships. Whatever those relationships might be, however they might connect to us, however we might have gotten ourselves into those relationships, that is what defines us. That is what consumes the majority of our time in this world is those relationships. And so think about this with me. Who is it that we rub up against in life? Because that's for us what it means to be going. That's for us what it means to make disciples. Is Are these relationships that God has placed in my life, have I submitted them to Him? If he is indeed Lord of my life, if he's Lord of, of all that I am and all that I have, what are those compartments of my life that I often don't think directly connect to him? And relationships, interestingly enough, is one of those compartments. Who do we rub up against in life? Well, quite obviously, we rub up against friends in life. You know what your friends are. Those are the folks with whom we share interests. Those with whom we share life. The people we like to be around. The people we like to laugh with. The people we like to share meals with. The people we like to have over. The people we like to meet at the game. The people we like to gather the kids together and hang out at the park. The people that we spend what we call our leisure time with. Our friends. Sadly, in our culture, people are saying more and more that they have less and less real friends. Friends that they can call on in a moment's notice. Friends that they can call on in a time of desperate need. When the world is falling apart. When life isn't working out as it was planned. More and more people have fewer and fewer friends to call on. But you and I have friends. We have one another. And I'm sure I believe in you. I think you got some friends other than the, the folks that are gathered together in this room. Friends are people that we rub up against in life. We have other relationships. We've got the relationships of, quite obviously, relatives. 
Folks with whom we share genetics or folks with whom we at least share a last name. Our relatives, our family. Moms and dads and kids and siblings and aunts and uncles and distant cousins who have married into the family somehow. Folks that we see periodically. Some, some of whom live not far away. Others that live quite a distance away. But we've all got relatives in our lives. And relatives are people that we also rub up against in life. Our families, in addition to our friends, are the places that we are going. And that Jesus calls us in that context to make disciples. But there are others you might have guessed. We've got associates or co-workers. Folks with whom we, we share work. Folks that we disagree with, folks that we report to, folks that report to us, folks that we have to brainstorm with and come up with ideas and troubleshoot and solve problems. In fact, for many of us, our associates are the people that we spend most time with. For the kids, that would be your classmates. For some of those kids, that would be your siblings. Those are your classmates. And there's another category of relationship that we have in life. Places to which we are going. Which, sadly enough, we, we rarely consider and think about. And that is the relationships that we have with our neighbors. You, you know that I've quoted Wesley before as saying, my neighbor is two people. He is the person before me and the next person I'll meet. But when we think of neighbors, we often think of the people who live next door to us. The people that live across the street. People who live down in the cul-de-sac. Folks with whom we live. Folks whose barbecues will smell in the evenings. Folks who will notice... Hey, that light's been on. That, that front porch light has been on for a few days and a car's been missing. I wonder if they're out of town. Did you know, I think it's like one out of every six people living in America do not know, one out of every six, do not know the, the first name of their next door neighbors. We live as very isolated people. We spend our days before screens, whether it's the TV screen or the iPad screen or the cellular screen. We spend our days in these social media networks and we neglect the relationships that are literally living next door to us. I mean, our dogs sniff each other for crying out loud. And some of us don't even know the names of our neighbors. In all of these relationships, we share something in common with all of these people. Why not share Jesus? We say that our relationship with Him has put our lives back together. That it even guides and orders our lives going forward. But does it really? Does our relationship with Jesus really 
transform our lives to the extent that we've said. Perhaps if it did, others in our lives, others with whom we have relationships, would be affected to a greater extent. Paul asked the Colossians to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, being grateful people. But he invites them also to pray also for us. Why? To what end? That God would open to us. Now Paul's in prison. That God would open a door to us, not to get out of jail, but that God would open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, so that I may make it manifest, so that I might make it plain and visible, seeable, touchable, tangible, as I ought to speak. And then he encourages them, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, those who are outside the household of faith. Those who are not believers, those who are not disciples, those who are not named among Christians. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. For Paul and for Jesus quite simple. You've got to have something to say. Something to share. What difference does Jesus make in your life right now? That's the big question. A minister named Kenneth Chafin was asked by a skeptic this very question. What difference does Jesus make in your life right now? And his answer was quite direct, very quick. He said, there are several things which Jesus Christ does for me right now. And I want you to think of these in relationship to your own life. And think, could you be this quick in your response to somebody? Say you're at the cafe or at the coffee shop. And somebody says, hey, I I see you're reading your Bible. Tell me, that Jesus of yours, how has he changed your life? What would you say? Chafin says, there are several things which Jesus Christ does for me right now. First, he helps me accept the fact that I am not perfect. I make mistakes. He forgives my sins day by day as I confess them to him. Now I would go a little bit further in that theology, but he goes on. Second, he helps me to accept the gifts that I have and to use them in a way that gives me a sense of fulfillment. That's interesting. Third, he helps me to love people that I would not have loved before. Amen. Fourth, he gives me good friends in the church who love me and care for me in all the circumstances of life. Fifth, he gives meaning to my life beyond myself. Finally, he helps me to accept the fact that I am mortal and will someday die. He gives me the hope of everlasting life through his resurrection. Now that's a pretty, pretty solid answer. A pretty solid reply for what difference does Jesus make in your life? If we're to ever influence others... For Jesus, if we're to ever point others toward Him, if we're to ever make disciples of all nations, as we are going, as we are living amongst amongst friends and relatives, as we're living with associates and neighbors, if we're to ever make a difference, we've got to have something 
to say or at least something to share. Too often, we simply say nothing or we share little. But why is that? I think we often say nothing or share little because of a lack of compassion. This may not be all of us, but there are times where we simply lack compassion. We think that others are going to get what they deserve. We feel slighted. We feel offended. We feel as though in the end, they've made their bed, they can lie in it. And we simply lack compassion. We're like Jonah, the prophet. Prophet of God, called to minister to God's people. And when he's called to go minister to not God's people, the Assyrians, he says, oh, heck no. I'm not going to go to them. Because Yahweh, I know exactly what will happen. I'll preach to them. Your spirit will move among them. They will repent. And they will be saved. And quite frankly, I want them to get what they deserve. And Yahweh says there are people in that city, thousands, hundreds of thousands, who do not know their right hand from their left. And you don't care a thing in the world about them. Because you have such a lack of compassion. Now that may not be all of us, but that may be some of us. We say nothing simply because of a lack of compassion. But it might be that we say nothing and share nothing or share little because of a lack of concern. We don't care enough. We don't live with an awareness that eternity is at stake. That what a person is becoming is at stake. We're concerned too much with the things of our own lives. We're concerned too much with the things that we like and the people we like. We don't have time for. We don't have a a real burden for others. We just don't care enough. It could be that we say nothing and that we share little with others because of a lack of courage. You know, we care, but just can't get past our fears. We just can't get past our intimidations. Fear often paralyzes. And courage is not a lack of fear. It's character enough and conviction enough and strength enough To do as we ought, even in the face of fear. I'm always, and you probably get tired of hearing me talk about our kids, not my kids, but all of our kids. I'm always amazed at how courageous kids can be and how cowardly their parents can be. I have seen it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. It has been me. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You take the kids to the park. The kids run out and play. Just a couple weeks ago, 
I heard Aiden. Hey, my name's Aiden. You guys want to play? Yeah, we're playing this. Come on. And you'll have parents who are all sitting normally not really close to one another. You know, it's the polite thing to sit on the end of the park bench because if you plop down in the middle, then somebody's got to, like, sit right up beside you and they're uncomfortable. So, you know, if you're the first one at the park bench, you sit all the way at the end so that somebody else can sit all the way on the other end. And that park bench is toast. Nobody else's rear end is getting on that park bench. Because we're all uncomfortable around each other. And we're all staring at our phones together, looking up the scores. Maybe even watching the game. Hopefully we're polite enough to turn the volume down a little bit. But we say nothing to one another. We might say, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? We don't actually answer that question. Sometimes if you really answer the question, hey, how's it going? Then people might get a little weird. Hey, how's it going? Not too well. It's been a really bad day. Oh. I, I do personally get a thrill out of telling people fantastic and, and sometimes if they reply oh you know that, that, that's good I'll say how are you doing oh, I'm doing alright oh, so not, not fantastic Well, no not really but you never know what might happen but typically we live we live in the fear of, of putting our necks out there getting out, getting out ahead of ourselves Rarely do you see perfect strangers at a park extending a hand and saying, my name's Adam. Nice to meet you. Which of these kids is yours? Some of you don't have kids that you're taking to the park anymore. But think, think about how, 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 uh, how often you extend your hand, give your name, and get to know somebody that you've not met before. Think about how often you extend yourself in a relationship that maybe this is somebody that you've worked with for years, but you just really haven't opened up with them. You're afraid of sharing too much, getting, to, getting involved too much. You kind of keep everything at arm's length. Keep everything at the, hey, how's it going? Some of us, we say nothing or we share very little of our relationship with Jesus of, of really just who we are as people because of a lack of conviction. You know, we think it's not up to me. There's somebody else in that person's life. Somebody else can, can talk about Jesus to them. They probably go to church somewhere anyhow. Even if they don't go to church somewhere, you know, that's not my business. We, we lack conviction. We lack an understanding that God points to us and says, you are my ambassadors. You are involved in the ministry of reconciliation. It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the church planters. You go and make disciples of all nations. You go and tell them about how I've changed your life. We lack conviction. It's somebody else's job. It's somebody else's burden. It's none of my business. It's not up to me. It could come down to the simple truth that we simply lack consideration. This is probably this is probably your best excuse, and I'm not trying to give you any excuses here, but this is probably your best 
excuse. The majority of us live simply with a lack of consideration. Again, we don't think about eternity. We pay it too little mind. We run around in life. We do our things. We get up. We go to work. We try to get off maybe a little bit early. We get home as soon as we get off. We go about our days. We try to catch the game. We get up in the morning. We go again. And we, we live with just a lack of consideration about what is going on in reality around us. What is going on in the lives of the people with whom we have relationships. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, as he drew to the end of it, said this, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, excuses, metaphor here, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, the possibility of what someone is becoming. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Perhaps you are thinking, Pastor, I I don't even know where to begin sharing Jesus with other people. I'm I'm shy. I'm intimidated. Um, you know, I got a job to keep. I can't get myself fired talking too much about religion and politics and all that sort of stuff. Keep the politics out of it. Maybe you can deal with that at you know other times in life. Perhaps you're thinking, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't even know where to begin. I want to offer to you just a few baby steps toward proclaiming and sharing the gospel with others. The first thing is this, and this is very simple. Pray for the people in your life. I'm trusting that you're praying, but pray specifically about the people in life, especially those you'd like to influence for Jesus. You know who they are, and that's not being proud or arrogant or condescending or anything to, to think, you know what, I don't know that this person is a Christian. I don't know that this person knows Jesus. And I want to be an influence in their lives. If there's no one that you can think of specifically, then pray that God would put somebody on your heart. Pray for the people in your life. Second baby step, work on developing those relationships intentionally. Relationships take time and they take effort. They take work. There are people that God's brought into our lives and we recognize that the relationships aren't where we would want them to be. Some of those relationships are hurt and we've got to take intentional steps toward helping strengthen those relationships by building trust 
Some of them are people that maybe a new friend, a new coworker, someone that you want to get to know a little bit better. Work on intentionally developing those relationships. All while praying. All the while asking the Lord, work in their life and use me in some way to work in their life, to point them toward Jesus. Build trust with them over time by listening and by sharing. We talk an awful lot. There are people that God's placed in our lives that probably need someone simply to listen, simply to be there. Simply to commiserate with. But build trust with them over time. Again, the key is intentionality. You can't say, hey, look, I've known them for five years and I'm trying to build trust with them. And you've never really spent any time with them, never really spent any time in conversation with them. But you know what? I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. You've got to be intentional about building trust with people, about working on these relationships. And slowly but surely, begin to share Jesus' influence on your life. It may come up in the most natural of ways. I've heard stories of, I, I, Bill's told me the story of a coworker whose life was falling apart. And he saw something different in Bill, had been seeing something different. And it opened up the opportunity to share about his love for Jesus and how Jesus had put his life back together right at the right moment. Share with them or invite them to church. You know, church really is so much a part of our relationship with him. Sometimes that's the easiest way to share our relationship. Let me connect you to the people who connect me to Jesus. We got mutual friends here. Now, in no way do I want for us to become annoying insufferable Christian witnesses where we're always thumping our Bibles and always poking at people and always prodding the bear and always looking down at people. In no way do I want to become that and in no way would I encourage you to become that. But what I am convinced of is that we need to become more intentional in our relationships. Recognizing that they do fall under the Lordship of Jesus. Simply put, we need to let Jesus into more corners of our lives, even our relationships, perhaps especially our relationships. As the apostle said, how will they ever know unless someone is sent? And Jesus tells us, as you are going, as you are going about your lives, as you are living, as you are mingling and interacting with these relationships that I've put in your life, make disciples. The Apostle Paul says, be wise, be in prayer, be gracious, look for open doors, pray for open doors. Be the type of person who's always aware of what God is doing around you and get involved in it. Let's pray.
Father, as we come to you this morning.